Obviously, talking about talents this morning, I spent most of my week watching America's Got Talent videos on YouTube. Um, lots of really off-color comedy. Just, ooh, read the room, you know. Uh, the guy that sings karaoke to the song Tequila. That's a good one. You know, tequila only has one word in it. It's tequila. Um, the guy, this is on Britain's Got Talent called The Burper. Uh, he came out, and before he started, Simon said, you know the winner of this competition gets to perform in front of the royal family, don't you? And he goes, oh, yeah. He said, do you think the royal family would like to see your talent? And he goes, oh, one of them will. I don't know anything about the royal family, but I'm sure that was funny to the Brits. But here's the weird thing. Like, we read this story, and it says talents, and that's exactly what we think of, right? Like, what's your special ability? Do you play the piano? Can you juggle chainsaws? Are you really good with spreadsheets? What's the thing that you have been talented with? Chainsaws. Chainsaws. And the funny thing is, that's, that's not what this is about. The word talent is a Greek word. It's talentum. You know it's a Greek word because it says um or us on the end of it. And it means a really big sum of money. It, it's, it works out to about 750000 to a million dollars in today's money. It would have taken an average person 15 to 20 years to earn that much income. That's what a talent is. And as Jesus tells this story, that is exactly what his audience is thinking about. These servants are given a large sum of money. But then over the years, preachers like me have been like, you know what, there's a really good sermon in here about using your musical gifts for Jesus, or giving your money and your time to the church. And we've created an English word that means special abilities simply because we have taught that this Greek word means special abilities for 1,500 years. So it doesn't really mean that. I mean, it kind of does, but it's really just a lot of money. So what is this story about? Remember, Jesus has been talking to us about the future. He started talking to us about the near future, about the destruction of the temple, and then he pivoted to his return, the day when he would come back to set up his kingdom in full. And at first, he said, hey, be careful, keep watch, because I might be here sooner than you think. But then last week, he said, be careful, keep watch, because it might be longer than you think, and you need to be prepared for a long time. And so just coming off of that idea that it might be longer than you think, Jesus might take a while, then a natural question is, what are we supposed to do in the meantime? How are we supposed to live our lives while we wait? And this is what this story, and I think the next story that we're going to look at next week, dig into. Take a look at verse 14. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey. He called his own servants and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two talents, and to another one talent, depending on each one's ability. Then he went on a journey. 
So the master gives his servants something to be responsible for while he's gone. These large sums of money, five talents would be like $5 million today. But he doesn't tell them what to do with it. He just says, here, take care of this for me. And maybe, maybe they, they had a side conversation that's not recorded in the story. Maybe there's, you know, some expectations that have been set in the way he runs his business. But at face value, the servants are just given all of this stuff to look after and no further directions. Do you ever feel like that? in your relationship with God, especially maybe some of you younger people. I, I, we have lots of conversations that are like, I don't know what to do with my life. I don't know, I don't know what I'm supposed, am I supposed to go this way? Am I supposed to go that way? Am I supposed to marry this person? Am I supposed to stay single? Am I supposed to be a missionary in the jungles of Borneo? I don't know. God has given me something to steward and he hasn't told me what to do with it. Gary Sitzer says, conventional understanding of God's will defines it as a specific pathway we should follow into the future. God knows what this pathway is, and he has laid it out for us to follow. Our responsibility is to discover this pathway, God's plan for our lives. We must discover which of the many pathways we could follow is the one we should follow, the one God has planned for us. If and when we make the right choice, we will receive his favor, fulfill our divine destiny, and succeed in life. If we choose rightly, we will experience his blessing and achieve success and happiness. If we choose wrongly, we may lose our way, miss God's will for our lives, and remain lost forever in an incomprehensible maze. You ever feel that way? Isn't that a weird way to think about God? I've got this really awesome plan for your life. I'm not going to tell you what it is. I hope you find it, though, because if you don't, your life is ruined. <laughs> Like, that just seems really weird if we say that God loves us and he cares about us and he wants what's best for us and he's just not going to tell us what to do. But he does tell us what to do. Jesus says this in Matthew 6, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is, isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to his life by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So don't worry, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So Jesus is not saying, don't ever think about the future, don't, don't make plans, but he is saying, don't get stressed out about those plans, don't worry about those plans, because Jesus says that God cares so much about you that he is going to take care of those things. Jesus says your priority should be the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. What's the kingdom of God? Well, as I often think, go back to the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus lays out the kingdom of, the God, kingdom of God. It's, it's peace and righteousness and goodness and faith and, and love. 
It's living in a way that looks like Christ. And so, implicit in that is this idea that we should be pursuing these greater things that are clear. And all the other things that we worry about, what do I do with these things that I have? How am I going to get money? How am I going to get food? What am I going to do with the money and the food when I get it? All that will kind of fall into place. Jesus, in this story, he says that the master gives the talents to each one depending on each one's ability. And I think this is really important. Personal ability precedes talent distribution, right? These servants have abilities. They have capacities. And because of those inherent capacities and abilities, the master gives them something to look after. Imagine being back in, back in the before times when we could go to festivals and things at an outdoor music festival or a fairgrounds and there's like a water filling station. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like, and you've got your, maybe you've got your like nice metal water bottle or maybe you just have the plastic water bottle that had bottled water in it. You drank it all and so now it's just empty and you're standing in line. But then there's the guy that's got like the three gallon igloo water bottle with the spigot on the top because he like needs to stay hydrated. Some of you are that guy. And you just think, really? You need that much water? And he's just sitting, there's this tiny little tap and he's just filling it and filling it and filling it and it's never going to get full because it's just ginormous. The water is the same for everybody. The capacity of the container is what changes. Everybody's container is different. The, the abilities of the servants are all different, but they're all given the same thing. These sums of money based on what they can handle. And the funny thing is, is the master doesn't seem to care. He doesn't say, shame on you, two-talent guy. You should be able to carry more. He says, no, no, this is what you can handle. I'm going to give you this. Go, go do something with it. The kingdom of God isn't a one-size-fits-all organization. And there's no comparison between people, right? The, the master's not happier with one or, or disappointed in another simply because of the capacity that they have. It's solely about you. What have you been given? The talents that you have been given are the life, the opportunities that you have been asked to lead. The, the family dynamics, the career dynamics, the, the personal goals, the um, relationships, the skills, all of that combined is the basis by which God says, this is what you can handle. This is what I'm going to give you. So then what are we supposed to do with this? What do we do with our talents? Let's look and see what these guys do. Verse 16, immediately the man who had received the five talents went and put them to work and earned five more. In the same way, the man who earned two talents, with two talents earned two more. But the man who had received one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. So two of these guys, they make use of what they've been given. They fully engage with it. They, they, whatever it is, their lives, their opportunities, they pursue it for the kingdom of God. 
And they access it and leverage it and expand on it. And the third guy, he just doesn't do anything, right? He, he hides it in the ground. He ignores it. And again, this isn't necessarily about specific abilities that we need to use for the Lord, right? Like, there's a, there's a huge pressure, and I don't want to dissuade anybody from doing things in the church, but there's a huge pressure that's often put on us that like, oh, you have a gift, how are you going to use that on Sunday morning? You know, you're a musician, you better be on the worship team. You've got a really nice smile, we need greeters. You don't mind dirty diapers that much, I've got a job for you. And that's fine, and, and, and we, we value that kind of volunteering, but, but that's not the sum total of everything that God has given you for His kingdom. It's so much bigger and broader than that. Using your talents is about taking the life that you have been given and making it count for something. Tim Keller, in his book, Every Good Endeavor, which is about uh, vocation and purpose, he says, some people think of the gospel as something we are principally to look at in our work. This would mean that Christian musicians should play Christian music, Christian writers should write stories about conversion, and Christian businessmen and women should work for companies that make christian theme products and services for Christian customers. Yes, some Christians in those fields would sometimes do well to do those things, but it is a mistake to think that the Christian worldview is only in operation when we are doing such overtly Christian activities. Instead, think of the gospel as a set of glasses through which you look at everything else in the world. What Keller says is it's not about being a certain kind of person and pursuing the gospel with that. It's about using the gospel to see everything about your life as a lens that you look through. So does that mean as a business person, you are called to make christian theme products? Well, not necessarily, but it does mean that you're called to make equitable products and pursue justice and, and fair wages and kindness to your customers and your employees and, and all of these other kingdom of God attributes that you're called to live in. The gospel opens our eyes to the opportunities of love and truth and grace and mercy and beauty around us. And in this example, the talents are God saying, this is what you are capable of making out of your life. Go for it. Do it. I'm excited for you. I want to see what you do. In his book, Garden City, John Mark Comer writes, you're not just a mom or dad getting your kids off to school or reading a story before bed. You're living up to God's call on your life to be fruitful and increase in number. You're not just a contractor working long, hard days in the heat and cold to build a house. You're cultivating the earth, drawing out its potential and reshaping the world into an environment for people to live as God intended. You're not just a student going to class or a software engineer working on a new app or a chef coming up with a new recipe or a scientist in his or her lab or a checker standing in place at a grocery store or an entrepreneur working out some crazy idea. You are a modern day Adam or Eve. This world is what's left of the garden, and your job is to take all the raw materials that are spread out in front of you, to work it, to take care of it, to rule, to subdue, to wrestle, to fight, to explore, and to take the creation project forward as an act of service and worship to the God who made you. These talents are like saying, this is the personal segment of God's creation 
that you have been entrusted with, that you've been given to work with. And they're going to look different for everybody based on who we are, but the expectation is the same for all of us. Make use of what you've been given. Look at verse 19. After a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five talents approached, presented five more talents, and said, Master, you gave me five talents. See, I've earned five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. The man with two talents also approached. He said, Master, you gave me two talents. See, I've earned two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. Jesus says the master returns after a long time. Remember, we talked about this last week. It's possible that Jesus is not going to return right away. And we've seen that bear out in church history. So what do we do in the meantime? Five-talent guy and two-talent guy report, we doubled your money. We took what you gave us and we put it to work and we made more of it. And notice they're given the same reward. It's like, it's like copy and paste between those verses. Praise, the promise of more responsibility and deeper participation in relationship with the master. The master doesn't say, hey, five talent guy, you're the best, so you get extra. Two talent guy, yeah, I only, you, gave, you only got two talents, it's fine. He doesn't differentiate between the two people and what they've produced. They both worked with what they were given. They both gave their lives to pursuing the master's assets, and they're both rewarded. First with praise, well done, good and faithful servant. Don't you love to be praised? Like even all of you introverts that are like, no, I don't like to be praised. Secretly, I believe you do. I believe somewhere deep down in the quietness of your soul, you're like, yeah, I did a good job. And you like, you like it when people notice. Even if it feels awkward and you don't know what to say. Hey, good job. Hey, you too, I guess. I don't know. The master says, well done, good and faithful servant. You did well. And then he says, you were faithful in few things, so I'm going to give you many things. And I love that. You handled $5 million like a pro. Now I'll give you some real money. It's like we, we think our lives are such a big deal, and they are to us. I think everybody in here would say $5 million is a lot of money, but to somebody who's a multi-billionaire, it's like nothing. And we go throughout our lives going, oh my gosh, this is so, the, the stakes are so high. And God's all like, yeah, maybe, maybe not. Good job riding your tricycle. Let's go fly an airplane. And this is what we have to look forward to when God's kingdom is fully present. As we enter into the kingdom of God, when Jesus returns, it's more, bigger, better, greater things. There's all of these like dumb caricatures of heaven about like, you know, they come from far side cartoons and, and medieval poetry where you, you, you turn into a little chubby baby and you sit on the clouds or you strum a harp or uh, heaven is going to be like church forever. And I think, oh my gosh, that sounds terrible. <laughs> the kingdom of God is going to be more of this. It's going to be perfect. 
It's going to be good. There's going to be food and drink and commerce and exploration and nature and beauty and uh, I think space travel, but I'm kind of weird like that. If you read the end of the book of Revelation, the new heavens and the new earth look a lot like the old one, except better. And he says, you are really good with this life that I gave you. I'm going to give you a bigger one to take care of. I'm going to give you a better one to take care of. I'm going to give you more responsibility. And then he says, share your master's joy. Come be a part of something bigger, something deeper and closer to my heart. And I love that it says joy. Joy is a deep emotion, right? Joy doesn't get out much. We rarely experience joy in people that we don't know well. Most of us keep joy really close to the chest, except children. Children don't know any better, so they're joyful all the time out in the open. But imagine, like, imagine your boss being happy, like, yeah, we nailed the budget numbers, woo! Like, you can, you can probably imagine a scenario where your boss is happy. But can you imagine a scenario where your boss is joyful? Like, deeply, abidingly joyful? Unless you know that person really well? Probably not. Because that's not something that we let out in public. Joy is an emotion that we save for the people closest to us. And this is what the master says to his servants, come and share in my joy. Joy is an invitation to a deeper relationship. But then look what happens next. The man who had received one talent also approached and said, master, I know you. You're a harsh man reaping where you haven't sown and gathering where you haven't scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went off and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. His master replied to him, you evil, lazy servant, if you knew that I reap where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered, then you should have deposited my money with the bankers, and I would have received my money back with interest when I returned. Now, if you feel like this is a weird twist to the story, it's because it's supposed to be. Everybody's tracking really well with Jesus as he tells this story about these servants and what seems to be a really kind and generous master who trusts his people and and lavishly rewards the people that works for him. And then this third servant comes up and is all like, master, I know you're kind of a jerk, so here's what I did. And you just kind of go like, wait, what? Is he a jerk? Did we miss that in the story? The thing is, no, we didn't miss it because it's not there. And that's what the master does. The master calls him out. He says, you don't don't know me very well, do you? If you're really concerned about how I would see this lack of increase, and if you really feared taking risks, you could have put the money in the bank. The truth is, is this third servant, he just doesn't care about the master's assets. And he's just totally unwilling to be bothered by them. Here here is a large sum of money that I want you to steward. Eh, I don't really want to. I don't really have time for that. I'm just going to hide it away so that I can give it back to you when when you're back. And then then he throws up this, this fear. This, I, I was afraid. And the master kind of says, you weren't really afraid. 
But even if he was afraid, like I feel like we deal with that a lot. We, we deal with fear, fear of risk a lot. Just investing money is risky. Following Jesus is risky too. We, we have a, many of us have an idolatry problem with safety. We, we need to be safe. What if, what if living my life with gospel-shaped glasses costs me my reputation? What if, it, what if it costs me money? What if it costs my health? What if, what if it costs my physical safety or even my life? Maybe it would just be wiser to hide it in the ground. Don't do anything foolish. And I feel like most of the time when great moves of God happen through the lives of people, you could look at them and go like, that was kind of foolish. And yet God is working through things that are risky. Are we people that are afraid of taking risks? Henry Nouwen, uh, in a famous story about a South African trapeze troupe called the Flying Rodleys, he tells this story about these, um, this trapeze troupe that, that, you know, flies back and forth on these little swings. And there's a flyer and there's a catcher. And everybody sees the flyer jump and flip and spin and grab the catcher. And everybody goes, ooh, the flyer, he's so cool, he's so amazing. But now one notices that actually the important person in this setup is the catcher. He says, if we are to take risks to be free in the air, in life, we have to know there's a catcher. We have to know when, it, when we come down from it all, we're going to be caught, we're going to be safe. The great hero is the least visible. Trust the catcher. Now it says that the catcher, the guy, that, the guy that's responsible for the safety and the success of this whole act, nobody really applauds for him because it doesn't really seem like he does anything, but his role is the most important. And now it goes on to say that God plays that role in our lives. If we are going to be people who are willing to take risks for the kingdom of God, we need to have trust in the catcher, the one who has our very lives in his hands. If we are fearful of engaging in the life that God has given us to live, if we know what we're supposed to be doing and we are afraid to do it, we don't really know the heart of the master. We're like the third servant. It's like, I think you're kind of a jerk. I think you're going to let me down. I can't trust you with my life. And the problem is, is we have a misunderstanding of who God is because God is faithful. God has given us what he's given us so that we would take risks with it and multiply it and use it for his kingdom. And we shouldn't be people that let fear stand in our way. Look at verse 28. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have more than enough. But from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. And throw this good-for-nothing servant into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, and this isn't ultimately, like I said, this isn't ultimately about knowing how to play the piano or being good working with your hands. It's about your life. And Jesus says life is ultimately wasted on the one that has no desire to live with their eyes focused on the gifts of the master. 
the servant has wasted what he was given because he just didn't care. And notice the one that started with five earned five more. And the master says he's the one with ten. And by the way, give the one to the one with ten. So the one, the one that started with a loan of five talents, he's still got the ten. And he gets another one. Because the master doesn't ultimately need the talents. The talents are for the servants. The kingdom of God is, is not ultimately for God's benefit. I mean, God will get glory forever and pleasure out of the, his kingdom. But, but sometimes we think that like God was like lonely before time began. He's like, man, I need some friends, and so I'm going to make people and then see what happens. And that's just not true. God is fully content in his relationship with himself, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, existent before time began in this dance of eternal love and goodness and joy together. And the whole point of the world we live in is him saying, you know what? What we have is awesome. Let's share it. And the, the master in the story, he doesn't, he doesn't take the talents back. He doesn't go, good job doubling my money. I'm going to go put that back in my bank account. He lets the servant keep it and then gives him more. Because the kingdom of God, the life that we live, the gifts we've been given, they're for us. And God smiles on our use of them. And then it ends, like all of these stories do, with this really dark conclusion. Throw this good-for-nothing servant into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And all of these metaphors throughout all of these stories point to final judgment. They point to this idea that only the good will be in the kingdom of God forever. And obviously, we look at ourselves and we go, we are not good. That's a dangerous thing for us. But if we are washed by the blood of Jesus, God calls us good. We have been made good by the goodness of Christ. But those that wash their hands of the gift of the master, those that go like, you know, I'm just not really interested in living my life working for the master's assets. There's exclusion from the kingdom. You don't want to be a part of it? You get your wish. You don't have to be a part of it. And the fate of this person is not based on performance. It's not like, you know, you didn't earn enough with what you were given. It has nothing to do with earning anything. It has to do with participating. The one talent guy just didn't want to engage. He didn't want to be part of it. And so God gives him what he asks for. And in the story, there is this metaphor of weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is, a, which is pulled from the Old Testament, and it's about pain and suffering and anger and bitterness against God. But God ultimately gives us what we want. If we don't want to participate in his kingdom, we're, we don't have to. So, as we close, in the light of this story, the question that I have for myself is, do I care more about my everyday or do I care less? As I recognize that Jesus could return at any time and as long as he's, 
He's absent. He has given me a job to do. He has given me abilities and opportunities and, and, and expectations and goals and relationships, all of these things that encompass my life. If Jesus returns today, praise God for that. But if He doesn't, we all have something to do tomorrow. We all have work or school or children or hobbies or connections with friends or a myriad of other things that we have been given to steward. And whatever it is, God has given it to us with the expectation that this is what you were designed to do and this is what you can handle. Not in yourself, but in the power of God that lives in you. And we're called to engage with it fully and make something of it. This is why we are here. This is why we don't bow our knee to Jesus and pledge our allegiance to His cross and His resurrection and instantly get transported to heaven. We get left here because we have a job to do. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, for you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. See that? Like what you do with your talents doesn't even come in to the picture. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Our abilities, our opportunities, our giftings, they all flow out of the relationship we have in, with Christ, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. I think of like a preschool art project. When you do a preschool art project with a class of preschoolers, you get all the supplies and you put them out on the table in little sets individually ahead of time. And then you let all the preschoolers in and you tell them to sit down in front of their supplies and they've got a popsicle stick and they've got some glue and they've got some glitter and a piece of paper and some markers. There is no place in that activity where the preschoolers are doing it wrong, right? This has been prepared for you. Do it. Make something with it. The only, the only negative experience there is the one that's all like, nope, I don't want to do it. I'm out. I don't like this. But it doesn't matter if you put glue on your popsicle stick or scribble on your paper. Maybe some of you even get scissors. I don't know. But whatever it is that you do with what you've been given, the goal is that you just do something with it. That you just make something out of it. And then God hangs it on his refrigerator. And nobody knows what it is. But that's okay. <laughs> so as we close this morning, we, we take communion every week as we remind ourselves of our participation in the death and resurrection of Jesus. We have been bought with his blood on the cross, shed for our sins. We've been invited into his kingdom. We've been adopted into his family. 
And then we've been given all these gifts, the power of the Holy Spirit, the, the situation we have in life, the families that we are a part of or adjacent to, neighbors, friends, jobs, schools, whatever it is that's in your sphere of influence has been set up for you ahead of time so that you could make something out of it. And there's no, there's no like quid pro quo here. It's not like, well, Jesus will die for your sins as long as you make something nice out of your life. That's not how it works. Our lives are a gift. And the only, the only way that it doesn't work is if we just say no to the gift. We don't, we don't want to do that. I'm not interested in that. But if we're, if we're people that call ourselves Christians, if we belong to Jesus, if we identify with his broken body and shed blood in the communion meal, then, then we have said yes to the art project. We have said yes to whatever arrangement of glue sticks and popsicle sticks and glitter that you have in front of you. And so God says, hey, just, just do something with it. Make, it. make it better until I get back. And just my encouragement today is like, what, are, what is that? What is the sum total of everything that you've been given as a human being that God has said, do something with your life? And if you immediately start freaking out about the details, don't. God will work that out. God's not hiding his plan from you. He's given you everything that you need to work through it. The help of his people, with his Holy Spirit inside of you. And however that looks at the end, I think the answer is, hey, good job. Well done. We just, we just have to do something. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.